Today we're going to be finishing up our summer series, our first summer series that we've been going through called One Size Fits None. I know it's awkward, right? One size fits none. This series has been all about looking at our faith and recognizing that God's super creative and he created us all a little bit differently. So therefore, we get to worship and connect with God a little bit differently. So the way that you and I individually connect to God may not necessarily be the best way for the person next to us. And so we need to do all that we can. And we've been trying this over the last couple of weeks to kind of explore these uh, eight or nine different pathways to connecting to God. And we, we took a spiritual like, you know, assessment tool that was found on our website to begin with. And you can go on our website and still check that out if you want and figure out like, where am I? Who am I in all of this? But the goal of this has been to learn about us and how we're created, but also to be able to learn about each of these pathways to recognize that the people around us are different. So let's help them connect to God in their way rather than forcing our way on them. You with me? So today, we're actually going to dive in and cover two different pathways, and we're going to close it out by covering the pathways of the intellectual, which is loving God with your mind, and we're going to be looking at the activist, which is loving God through confrontation. I left these to the end, honestly, because they're two pathways that I always thought I struggled with. Um, I'm not kidding. With the intellectual pathway, as I was growing up, and even when I learned about this the first time, I thought this was the pathway for smart people. Now, smart people may lean this way, but I'll be completely transparent with you. Most of my life, I've grown up feeling mentally very subpar to the people around me. I always feel inadequate. Um, I, I, I'm not a really good reader. It takes me twice as long to read something as everybody else. If there's a family in our family chat, if someone sends a meme, everyone laughs about 10 seconds before I do because they're there and I'm not. It just takes me a little bit longer. And I find it really hard to sit down and read for a long period of time. So I figured this pathway, smart people, not people like me. And the activist pathway, this confrontation, I'm like loving God through confrontation. I grew up as the middle son of three boys. My life has been filled with nothing but confrontation. In our household, you, it was the stereotypical loud Italian household. So, you know, confrontation where I grew up was always whoever is louder and flexes themselves bigger, that's how you win confrontation. And so you would fight over everything and your goal, make the other person feel small. That's how you won. So for me to think, yeah, you're going to connect to God through being super smart or connect to God through fighting with people, this, this was outside of my understanding. And I almost felt like, how could anybody connect to God that way? Like, it makes no sense to me. But the more that I explored these ideas and really tried to dive into Scripture to see what is this really about, the more I realized I connect with them deeper than I thought. These pathways, believe it or not, have always been a major part of who I am and who I connect and how I connect to God. And I hope today that you find the same freedom in these that I have found. And maybe if you're thinking, but that's not for me, maybe there's something in there for you and you can discover a new way to connect with the Father. What's interesting is you may think they're so separate, like one loving God with mind and the other seems like it's yelling with people. But it's amazing how these two go hand in hand. And it's amazing how these two also have some very similar pitfalls that we would have to be very, very careful of. And so today, I would love to go and explore the story that um, Dylan had read for us in Luke chapter 6 to look at both these pathways. Now, if we're looking at the pathway of, of, of like connecting to God 
as an activist, I'm sure that many people are thinking, oh, you're just going to go to the table or the passage where Jesus flipped tables in the temple, right? That's, that's what this is about. Believe it or not, I, I, I'm avoiding that intentionally because I think that passage gets taken out of context all the time. And I think we like to use that passage as a way to justify angry behavior, not righteous behavior. And so I think there's a huge issue there. Like we use that when we wanna yell at people, but that is not what this pathway is about. And so I really wanna look at this story where Jesus is, is kind of walking with his disciples. And if you have your Bibles with you, it's found in the biography of Jesus written by Dr. Luke. And when he's writing, this is pretty early on in Jesus's time in ministry. And so he has just in the last chapter, got his disciples to follow. He's, he's picked them out. As he walks around with them, they have seen him do miraculous things. They've seen him heal diseases. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him teach in such a way that it was practical. And, and it really held to the Old Testament, you know, their scriptures as Jews that they were like, this makes sense. It doesn't always make sense. He's teaching practically. And, and there's this beautiful connection that they have, but they cannot figure him out at the same time. They don't understand why he does what he does. And so they're still learning him. They're still learning him. And that's where we pick it up in the beginning of Luke chapter 6. And so let's look again at this passage and see if we could pull some themes out from the intellectual and the activist pathway. Starting in verse 1, it says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisee said, Why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Okay, so Dr. Luke's given us some really important details right up front here. First, this takes place on a very special day. What day? The Sabbath. The Sabbath, this is a 24-hour period that God had said, I need you as a nation, this Jewish people, to pause from your work. This is kind of a big one. It's a top tenor, okay? Like it's in the Ten Commandments. A big, big deal. So Jesus and his disciples are walking along this path. They pick some grain, they rub it in their hands because they're hungry, and then they eat it. And here comes the Pharisees, these expert teachers of the law, the ones who know the scriptures inside and out. And, and at this point, I know we can easily look at the Pharisees and always say, they're so mean, they're out to get Jesus. Actually, they're keepers of the law and trying to make sure that everybody sticks to it. And so at this point, when they run into Jesus, I really think they're just trying to hold Jesus accountable. Listen, you say you're a Jew like us. This is a very important command you got to hold to. So why are you walking? Because they had certain rules about how far you could walk. And then they say, why are you grabbing grain and harvesting? That's work. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Why are you rubbing in your hands? That's more work. And they're trying to question Jesus. What are you doing? Do you not know this is wrong or what? And, and so do you feel the tension? They're trying to help them trying to direct them, I think. And so Jesus replies in verse 3. He says, haven't you read the scriptures, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priest can eat. He also gave some to his companions. They question Jesus and say, why are you breaking the law? Did you pick up what he said right up front here? Check out what he says. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? Remember, he's talking to the experts. He's talking to the people who like graduated from super seminary, if you will. Of course, they've read the scriptures. 
which is why they're calling him out, right? But Jesus references then. He says, listen, don't you know the story about David? And this is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 where, uh, you know, David and his men, they're on the run from King Saul. They're starving and they don't know what to do. And so instead of letting him, this, his troops starve, he actually goes to this priest's and the priest gives him the sacred bread that is meant to be holy and set apart. And so he gives it to them so that David and his troops don't die. Jesus is basically asking them, haven't you done your homework on this? Haven't you done your homework on Sabbath and what you can and can't do? Haven't you done this? Now, let me ask you really quick. Have you ever confronted someone because you thought you knew better? And then the moment that you confronted them or you talked to them, you realize they knew more than you did. Anybody, that happened to anybody else besides me? Okay, um, so like four of you are with me. Great, um, you understand. Listen, I have had this happen so many times. And every time that I go to confront someone, I'm like, listen, that's not true. And, and I'm there and they correct me because I was a bit ignorant. I go back and I do more homework. I want to make sure that I study that thing completely because I don't want to be wrong again, at least with that person again, right? So I have to think that at this point, they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, you are off on Sabbath. And he's like, haven't you read? I'm thinking they go back to temple and they're like, okay, let's study so this doesn't happen again. We're not letting Jesus do this again. But the story continues very quickly into Verse 6, where it says, on another Sabbath day, okay, here we go again, you ready? On another, another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. On the day of no work, they are in the temple, or they're in the synagogue together. They're watching Jesus as he's teaching, and in, it, I find it interesting that he says they watched Jesus. They weren't listening to him, were they? They were watching him, not listening to the teachings of the Messiah. And here, they're watching to see if he heals someone, which I guess now we realize after their study of scriptures, they consider healing someone on the Sabbath work. Ch verse 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He always knows their thoughts. I love that. He knows ours too. Thank you. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. And so the man came forward. Jesus pauses his teaching in this moment. He knows what's going down. I think everyone can sense something's up right here. And then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law. So Jesus is pointing them back to what they're experts in, right? Does the law, he's meeting them on, on straight, even, even ground. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? He doesn't kind of pull extra resources here. He looks straight at the law. He meets them with where they're experts, and he doesn't ask them what is allowed to happen on the Sabbath. He doesn't say, should you be able to get away with these things? He asks, what's the heart of the Sabbath? Is the Sabbath about what you can do on it or about what it's for, what's behind it? That's a completely different conversation, isn't it? I'm sure they did not think of that when they were studying. 
The heart behind the Sabbath, if you go and you read the Old Testament, is God gave this gift of 24 hours off to the Jewish nation because they were just freed from 400 years of slavery. They worked seven days a week, unending, and God's like, if you're going to be a different type of people, set apart, looking different than everybody, I'm going to have to help you change your identity because all you know is work. And so one of the top 10 rules I'm going to give you is 24 hours off. You have to take it because you need to rest. You need to eat together with your family and friends. You need to laugh and celebrate and worship God in the temple together, in the synagogue together. Celebrate the Sabbath. It is a big day where you're going to need each other. I don't want you to work. Don't do it. How cool is that? In order to help them avoid going right back into the pattern of slavery, the heart behind it is, I want you to know you're different. I love you. This isn't who you are. You're mine. Take a day off. Relax. And then, in the beginning of verse 10, it tells us, he looked around at them one by one. Could you imagine this moment? I wish I I wish I knew how long this went on. I wish I knew how many people were in the synagogue at that time that's like, he was locking with everybody. And I think just waiting, just waiting on them. They knew every law in the Old Testament. They were the smartest ones in the room. And do you know what Jesus got? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so he looked at them one by one. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with them. You see, Jesus answered his own questions in four words. Hold out your hand. Hold out your hand. Those four words sent the religious leaders who were in the room spiraling out of control. They went from being critics to, you could see the word that's used here, to being enemies of Jesus. They had no idea what to do with this guy. Enough was enough. You know, when we step back from this story, we actually get a pretty good look at the intellectual pathway and the activist pathway. They're both combined in this story because you see that, that if the intellectuals love God with their minds, both Jesus and the Pharisees here knew the law, didn't they? They studied the law. They had dedicated themselves to it. The difference was that Jesus was always asking deeper questions to discover the heart of God in every passage. The Pharisees, however, studied it to set themselves apart and to use that knowledge as a bit of control over the people that they that they ruled over. The activists, if they love through confrontation, and I think it's a horrible way to say that, so I think the better way to say that is they love seeking justice. It's probably a better way. You see, Jesus' life, if it's confrontation, was filled with confrontation. It was filled with confrontation. When we say live like Jesus, I hope you know that people didn't like him that he was always being confronted about something. Now, this doesn't mean that he's always connecting to God through confrontation or these issues, but remember, that first confrontation about Sabbath was brought to him. He was out there walking. But when he was teaching in the synagogue, at that point, he brought controversy to them. He saw a man being viewed as a pawn, not a person, and God's law being used as a weapon, not a gift. 
and he would never stand for that type of injustice. It's almost like he had to say something and do something to speak against the unjust system or it would never change. Let me tell you, both these pathways of connecting to God can be very controversial, but amazingly life-giving and necessary at, at the same time. So let's just look a little bit deeper at them and in hopes that you might find some breath here. Let's look at the intellectual to begin with. The intellectual, loving God with the mind. You see, intellectuals come alive when their mind is engaged. They absolutely need their mind to be awakened. They, when they understand something new about God, something about his character, his principles, they just are all sorts of excited about it. When their mind is engaged in worship, they are able to come and their heart becomes totally full. And I know it's like weird. Like, what do you mean your mind is engaged? You see, facts, theology, sources, accuracy, these are a must for intellectuals because it really does matter. Intellectuals have an amazing power to ask hard questions. I almost think it's like a spiritual gift to be able to ask questions that have no answer to them, but they simply call for deep, 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 deep thinking. What do I do with that? Intellectuals love that type of stuff because it, it makes God so grand and mysterious and they want to dive in. You see, the Pharisees tried to corner Jesus and, and they tried to corner him with presenting the law as intellectuals in a way that they knew, saying, you're not doing this. But Jesus and his followers of Jesus, I think we are all called in some sense to be intellectuals, that we are called to engage our minds. If you follow Jesus, we, you and I, better engage our minds in our faith. I, I need to tell you, this isn't just about pastors or clergy, like, oh, you do seminary, you do Bible school. This is for you. No way. A professor of biology can love God just as much through their mind as, you know, a, a professor of New Testament. Both of them can have an amazing connection with their mind because it's about their mind coming alive, not always about what they're studying. Since God created everything, let me tell you, this deeper study into things, and you could dive into biology, explore that, explore psychology, sociology, you pick it. As you study these things and you begin to look at them deeply, you go, my God is so much more complex than I understood. <gasps> I love him. And there's this excitement, not this shame that comes with it. This pathway is about engaging the mind. And sometimes I honestly wonder what Jesus would say to us today as his followers. Because I think that many of us, we disengage our brain. We some, for some reason, I'm not sure why we do this, we check our brain at the door when it comes to thinking about Jesus because, well, listen, it doesn't have that much to do with faith. Faith is faith. It's not a mind thing. I want to tell you, I think we have so much access to information right now, so much access to anything that you want to know, yet we seem to know so little, both about our scriptures and about the world that we live in and how it's changing. I have a feeling that if Jesus were to walk into most of our churches and into most of our lives, I, I fear that he would say the same exact thing that he said to the Pharisees to us. Haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read? Don't you know what's in there? 
I, I don't have time to read. I can't do this. I'm so busy. Intellectuals, you're about to love what I'm going to say, okay? <laughs> I think it's time for Christians to engage the brain. I think it's time for us to start reading more. Every one of us. I honestly expected an amen from the intellectuals in the room right there, okay? Listen, for real. Um, I, I'd make an argument right now that I think everybody in this room, everybody in this room right now could read about 100 bucks a year. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes! Others of you are looking at me like, you're an idiot. I could never do that. I see it. You think I'm crazy. Well, I am. I am a little bit crazy because I'm about to get all crazy and show you my crazy math. You ready? Let me tell you why I think you and I could read 100 books a year. Author Charles Chu, he says that the average American reads in between two to 400 words per minute when they're reading. So for our example right now, let's just go with the Pastor Jimmy reading rate of 200 words per minute. The average um, book that we can find that's nonfiction is 50,000 words. So let's take, uh, let's go back one. There should be one more before this mathing. 100 books at 50,000 words brings us to about 5 million words, okay? 5 million words is what we're looking at for 100 books. Now, if we take that 200 rate that I've got, we take 5 million words at my 200 words per minute, nice and slow, that comes out to 25,000 minutes. All mathing divided by 60, you get 417 hours. You with me so far? Okay, you, are you sure? Some of you are looking at me like, I don't like math, it's summer. We're in a school, it counts, okay? Now listen, I know what you're thinking. I don't have 417 hours, Jimmy. There's just no way. No one in New Jersey has that kind of free time. Listen, the average American spends just over two hours a day on social media. That's 815 hours a year, and at two hours a day times 365 days of the year, that's 730 hours. So, Oh, I should probably tell you, um, that doesn't include the 912 hours that we spend streaming or watching TV or something on Netflix, okay? So really, I mean, realistically, we've got about 1,600 hours that are spent staring at some sort of screen. If you read at a normal person's rate, you could easily clear 100 books a year. No problem. No question asked. So let's be real here. The problem isn't time. The problem isn't time. So let's just stop using that as an excuse. Can we do that? Let's do that. Let's, let's just say we all have the time. The problem is not time, it's desire and distraction. We just don't see a value in reading. Most people don't, which is the complete opposite of a monk in Normandy in 1170. He said this, I love it. He says to, he writes this, he says, a monastery without a library is like a castle without an armory. Our library is our armory. I love that. Can I tell you, Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew about the world around him and what was happening. And I believe that you and I, as his followers, need to do the same. So get creative with how you read. I'm not saying you got to pick up a book and just start pounding through. Listen, I am a huge fan of audiobooks. And when I've, I've had people say this to me, audiobooks don't count, Jimmy. That's not reading a book. And I say, that's fine. I just smile and I nod at them as they scroll to the bottom of a never-ending Instagram feed. 
Go ahead. You, you, you keep scrolling away. Guess what? You will never find what you're looking for at the bottom of that. And I'll listen to, I'll listen to my book that doesn't count and just enjoy it. Maybe, maybe it would be helpful for you if you download the Bible app on your phone or the Kindle app. Put that on your home screen as one of the first apps that you're going to see. Right? Maybe you use those when you go to the bathroom for 20 minutes instead of scrolling down to find the bottom of a never-ending feed or playing that game for a little while. 20 minutes. Go ahead. Please, we all know you're in there a lot much longer than that. Use your time in the car to read. Grab some audiobooks. I got tons of them. I love them. Honestly, I'll be killed. I can't remember one talk show that changed my life that I listened to. I, I can't remember one Hollywood podcast, one sports analysis that shifted my view drastically on who God is. You see, when you read and you consume something, I'm going to challenge you to be intentional about what you consume. Don't just let culture choose what you consume. You choose what you consume. And, and I think there is an amazing place for fiction books out there. I love reading fiction books. There are some books I will read over and over. Um, I, I, I'll read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit every year. I'll read any fantasy novel by Brandon Sanderson. Um, I just love them. I, I, I'll read The Wingfeather Saga over and over. And you're like, what are those? They're my, some of my favorite stories, and I read them because I get to be a better storyteller when I read them. But we can't live off stuff like that. I like to call that fast food books. You can't live off McDonald's, at least long. You can't live off those kinds of novels, so you got to switch it up a little bit. Dive a little bit deeper. I suggest diving deeper into church history. You know, as an evangelical church, I think we are completely ignorant of how we got to where we got. Go dive back into history. Uh, you want to start really easy? Go read this, Church History in Plain Language. Church History in Plain Language. It's awesome. It's so cool. It's really easy to understand, even for someone like me. You'll love it. It's great. You'll learn about how we got here. Go read biographies and, and of the different saints throughout history. Their stories are amazing. We stand on their shoulders. Go read about people who have changed the world. Read, read biographies about Steve Jobs or Abraham Lincoln or read stories about people that have shifted culture and ask God, what did they do and what were they about? The more I read these, the more I'm grateful to learn from somebody else's mistakes so I don't have to make them, number one. But the more I read them, the more I appreciate the stage on which I stand is not something Crossbridge has designed, but thousands upon thousands of years of faithful followers of Jesus. Oh, I love it. You, you could dive deeper and be intentional with some Bible studies. If you soap with us, which is the way that we read the Bible together day by day, we read a chapter a day. Forget a chapter a day. You know what I would challenge you to do? Forget a chapter a day. If you want to do this, take one book of the Bible, and instead of a full chapter, just read it three verses at a time with like two or three commentaries and maybe the soap guide there, and for a month, do nothing but read that book. You're like, I'd get so bored. Maybe, or you would understand it inside and out, and the Word of God would be so ingrained in your soul that you would see it popping up everywhere. And you're like, oh! But I know that, and then this way, when someone's like, you know in Romans where it says, and you could say, uh-uh, it doesn't say that. I know what Romans says. Let's talk about it. And there's a conversation in that. You really want to challenge yourself? Let's have fun. Sit down with me. Let's talk about philosophy and ethics. You know, we avoid these things because we hate asking questions that have no answers. There better be a solution.
Sometimes it's really good to ask questions that have no answers. I had a conversation with someone this week and they asked me, what do you think at the resurrection our bodies look like? Will there be a certain age and will we carry our memories with us from when we were on this earth? Is that part of our soul? Because it's our mind? <gasps> I'm on my way to pick up my daughter from theater and I'm thinking existentially, like who, who am I and what makes me up? I loved it, it was great. Attempt to focus on like things that matter now in our culture, relevant topics, debatable topics, because we should be asking the question as his followers, how should a Christ follower think about this thing? You should have an opinion on abortion, on capital punishment, on immigration and refugees, on human sexuality. You should have an opinion, I think, even on things that the Bible doesn't talk about. Things like artificial intelligence and what we do with it right now. That's been my study for like the last four months is thinking through, what do I do with this? It's changing the world we live in. How should a Christian view this? We should be knowledgeable in what's happening in the world around us and know what the Bible says about it. We should read both sides of an argument. Don't find yourself in a vacuum just listening to the voices that affirm what you already believe. No one needs that. That just creates more ignorance. What you need and what I need is to find both sides of an issue to say, how is the other side? Because the more you dive into an issue, it's always more complex than you think it is. I promise you that. If you need suggestions, you're like, I don't even know where to start. Ask me, ask me. I, I read about 60 books a year. I'm not, gonna, I'm not at the 100 mark yet. Most of those I listen to. I put an audio book on while I'm in the kitchen cooking. I love it. But I'm addicted to scripture, and I will read that over and over and over. And the books that I read, they are all over the map. If you saw my Goodreads list, you'd be like, really? I got a Snoop Dogg book up next. Why? It's gangsta. <laughs> Listen, if you're an intellectual, I need you to be careful, though, that you don't move into a place of knowing and not doing. You have to apply what you're learning or it is absolutely wasted. Please remember that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And Jesus has a very strong command to his disciples in John 13 where he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Just because you know it doesn't mean you'll do it. You have to do something with the knowledge that you have. You also have to guard against looking for controversy. Guilty. I'm preaching to me in this exact moment. Surprise, sometimes I like to poke the bear. If you've been in small group with me before at any point, you know that I just am like, yeah, and I do it. I, I do. I uh, kind of apologize, but if I feel challenged by something I'm reading, I like to challenge others, and this is not always good. I have to take what Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, while he's pastoring, and I have to take it very seriously. He writes to him in a letter. He says, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Let me read that again. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Don't get caught up in stupid stuff. Don't get caught up in stupid stuff. Please, don't get caught up in stupid stuff. Arguments are just discussions with no love. 
that are aimed at defeating the other person rather than actually caring for them. I believe that this is sin. Once we have knowledge, we can weaponize it against people or we can use this to fuel healthy conversations, healthy debates. That is something so good. We need healthy discourse. You need to sit, some, sit down with someone you don't agree with without fighting with them. You're like, but they're so difficult. Yeah, well, go ahead and be patient with difficult people. Ask for that. But when you have these healthy conversations and you dive deep, it's amazing how quickly an intellectual can turn to an activist. It's amazing. Because you see an activist, this loving God through confrontation, which I think is much better described as loving God through pursuing justice, this is not about picking fights. If you're good at picking fights, it does not mean this is how you love God. This is probably how you tick a lot of people off around you. Because notice that Jesus does not go in guns blazing in this story at all. But he is very eager to stand up for righteousness and justice. He doesn't want to completely destroy this culture. He's come to fulfill all the laws. And he noticed things are not right. And so justice needed to be had. Justice was being ignored in so many ways and often through confrontation. Jesus was the voice for people who didn't have one. And his actions are attempting to make things line up to be what's right. That is what biblical justice is all about. A man much smarter than I am named Tim Keller, um, amazing, amazing man, he said this about biblical justice. Biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards to which, and, and with the same respect, regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. This is what Jesus is doing every single time he spoke up, and he stood up for women and children who were pushed aside or taken advantage of. Every time he invited the outcast, the poor, or the people who were considered the worst of sinners to dinner, it drove the establishment nuts because they were not, you don't spend time with them. If someone didn't have a voice, he was going to speak up for them. If they didn't have a seat at the table, he was going to invite them. And when the scriptures were used to harm instead of bring hope and healing, he would step in to bring justice. He would step in to make things right. You see, even healing a man on a Sabbath was a deliberate choice to reveal how sinful the leaders were treating people. They're not pawns. Now, if you get intellectual and you read about the past and the present church history, let me tell you, the church, the Christian church has been one of the most powerful, powerful tools in seeing social reform in our world. We have messed up in a lot of ways as well and really messed things up. But there are so many ways in which we have stood up and said things need to change. Here in America, even in the uh, early 1800s, I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Finney, but Charles Finney was a guy who, from the pulpit of his church, boldly proclaimed slavery as the greatest national sin. Just kept saying it. If you went to his church, he would refuse to serve you communion or refuse to baptize you if you supported slavery. He was that committed to justice. In our recent history, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose faith as a gospel preacher his understanding of the scriptures, it fueled him to become one of the boldest nonviolent voices to stand up for social justice and reform and civil rights. And right alongside him, Congressman John Lewis, a follower of Jesus who not only stood next to Dr. King at these nonviolent rallies, crossing 
these bridges together, but he continued to pursue a position in politics, in Congress. Why? To help and inspire others to vote and to implement the changes that he saw needed to happen for justice to be heard and happen. And, and these were the things that he longed for. I love how he famously said, speak up, speak out, get in the way. That's an activist right there. He said, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. You see, activists aren't just looking for confrontation. We can find that anywhere. They're seeing an injustice, and an activist cannot stand to see it, and they need to stand up. Are you with me? So activists will confront injustice in any way possible. They want to see God's kingdom come, and they will advocate for justice however it needs to happen. They'll confront with words when words are needed. They will organize rallies or protests or prayer walks. They will use images and videos. They will use campaigns, and even in some cases, if they get super intellectual, they will learn the laws of the land to know what needs to change to fuel other people who care like they do. Well, they'll never be the voice. They will be the fuel to see a change. We need people like this in the church, amen? If we're not standing up for justice in our country to see things be made right around the world, who's gonna do that? And why are we so frustrated when people do it? We try to shut their mouths and say, don't, don't stand up to make things right in our country. Just let it go. We gotta stop playing nice sometimes and say some things this is something you have to stand behind. This is an injustice. And I have friends who are followers of Jesus, who are activists who stand on completely opposite sides of the same topic. So what do you do? You love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you ask the Holy Spirit for guidance on where to line up. You keep studying to learn, understand what you, where your conviction is that he's given you. But do not sit here in shame because one of the biggest issues that you will find as an activist is you can go from hating sin to hating people really quick. We don't get to do this. That is sin. Do not move from hating sin to hating people. We can hate injustice, but we cannot hate people. God has called us to love people, to be kind. No bowling over people to get a point heard. That's destruction. I told you up front, I, I never really thought I connected with these. And I think it's simply because I defined them wrong. I thought the intellectual was for smart people, and instead I've learned it's for people who ask questions. It's for people who want to know more about God, and when they learn it, they just come alive, and they like, oh, and you just want to share it with everybody. I almost think the intellectual pathway is more for us, of a, those of us who struggle with our intellect, because we want to know more. I want to challenge you if that's where you are. You're thinking, that's not for me. Yeah, it is. Just ask good questions. Learn with me. And the activist isn't about confronting people all the time. It's about standing up for injustice. I understood these two pathways in my life, and they came together very, very quickly, right in the middle of COVID. On June 13th of 2020, I found them collide, and I found myself in a situation I never expected to be in. About 10 years before that day, I was uh, pastoring up in North Jersey, and while I was there, I realized that um, it was a predominantly white area, and I grew up in a pretty multicultural, multi-ethnic area. And where I was pastoring, um, I loved the church, but I remember being kind of questioned and, and hit a little bit when 
I invited a person of color into a position of leadership in the youth group that I was pastoring. And, and someone in the church, it wasn't leadership at the church, but someone in the church that said, why are you doing that? We don't let those people. And as soon as I heard those people, I was like, hmm? <laughs> what do you mean those people? And it, it took me a second and I, I didn't really know what to do. I was young and, and it was weird and I didn't want to talk back to them. So I went and I began to study. What don't I know about race? What don't I understand? Because I, I mean, I have so many friends who are black and brown and, and all different parts of Asia. And it's like, oh my gosh, what? What am I missing here? I was missing a lot of understanding, so I began to read. I began, I began to read about everything I could on race. I read uh, different positions that people had theologically. I read about how the churches impacted race. I read um, people who were like white nationalists and all white people should die. I mean, it was, it was amazing the things that I had read and I wanted to know what was going on. And I, I didn't really tell anybody I was reading these things. I just wanted to know because I knew something was off and I didn't know how to, to even speak to that person. As I began to pastor here, I found myself connecting with all sorts of people because that's what I love to do. And on, in June of 2020, I was invited to speak at the Unity March here. That was right in East Greenwich. George Floyd had just been brutally murdered. Everyone watched it, didn't know what to do with it, and riots and rallies popped up all over our country. Here in East Greenwich, one happened, and I was asked to speak. I will tell you that some people in our church left when they found out I was asked, how could you ever stand up at a Black Lives Matter march and speak? It was easy. I loved it. Do you know why? Because the chief of police is a friend of mine. And I, I get to pray for him often. And the mayor is a friend of mine. And I get to pray for him often. And some of the leaders of our chapter of Black Lives Matter in East Greenwich are friends of mine. And I pray for them often. And every one of them in separate circles said, Jimmy, would you speak? What a beautiful place to be that you don't have to pick a side and say, well, you're right and you're, it's so much more complex. Race is such a complex topic. And there is injustice here, and I can see that. And yet each of these areas, the government and our, our police and black lives that are being treated differently all matter to God deeply. And as a Christian, we should be bridge builders, not burners. And we can stand up for justice, and it doesn't mean that we have to, like, kill everybody in our path we can bring hope to both sides. Isn't that where we should be? Isn't that what the church should be doing? Is to stand up and say, this matters. Let me tell you, Jesus cares about this. That doesn't come if we don't study. That doesn't come if we're not willing to stand in the gap. This is what Jesus did in Luke 6. I believe the, this is what Jesus does at communion. He stands in the gap for us and in very unjust way is thrown on a cross to create a place of justice where our sin has to be accounted for, that we have done things wrong. And when Jesus hangs on a cross, he takes on our forgiveness. And he says, this, all this sin, I'll take it, and I forgive you. His last words, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're still growing and learning, aren't we? 
we're still becoming aware of our sin. I don't know if you felt it, but during that, I want to say thank you, thank you, as we're repeating that. All I could do is say thank you, God, for your forgiveness, because my sin, I still struggle with it day after day after day. When will I get over this? It's like, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is what we celebrate today when we come to the table. And so as we approach communion at Crossbridge, this is an open table where we encourage everyone who has placed their trust in Jesus, who is their desire is to live like him, to look like him, to dedicate themselves to his teaching. We would encourage you in a minute to come and to break bread, to dip it into the cup and to bring it back to your seat as we uh, take communion together. So would you stand with me? Jesus, I'm well aware that there are probably in this moment activists who are feeling ignited. And I want to ask Holy Spirit that you would fan that flame. I want to ask that you would continue to raise up men and women who will be voices, who stand up for injustice and look like you and God. I ask that you would allow us as a church to be some who support them, who elevate those voices, who amplify those voices because where there is injustice, that means people are being treated wrongly. And Lord, you need us there. You need us there. You were there. Would you fill our church with people who feel unjustly treated so they could be loved and find you? For people in this room who have wrestled, God, I pray, with their minds and what they think and not feeling less than, would you release them from that lie and allow there to be this great sense of curiosity that is redeemed? Let questions abound. Let them look at the world differently and teach all of us. This is not about pastors. This is not about the best teachers and small group leaders. This is about us growing. Inspire us to know you. Where we have squelched this in people's lives, we ask for forgiveness. Thank you for the celebration of communion that brings us to a place where it reminds us of that. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.